If, uh, welcome to New City Church. If you're here with us for the first time tonight, we're glad you're here. We're going to jump right in tonight. Last week we began a new series titled, Who is Jesus? It's out of the book of Mark. Mark we, we were in Mark 1 last week and saw how at the beginning of the gospel is the broken humanity while answering the question, who is Jesus? And we saw that Jesus is the Son of God. And how only the Son of God can fix what a broken humanity cannot fix. So we're going to be walking through this book, the book of Mark. It'll, it's going to take us all the way to Easter, uh, which feels like a long way off. While in reality, it's really not enough time to go take a really deep dive into the book of Mark. And so during this series, we're going to be filling in the sections that we miss. We're going to be filling this in during our midweek groups. Uh, and, and what we miss there, I want to encourage all of you to, to, to read it on your own, to study it on your own. Uh, and just so you know, our groups are a vital part of our church. We stay often here that what we do uh, during the week is more important, if, if not more important, than what we do on the weekend. Honestly, if you're not in a group, you're missing half of what we do here at our church. So get in a group if you're not in a group. So with that said, I want, you, I want to turn your attention to Mark chapter 2. And while you're turning there, now I want to address a concept that we see in our passage today. Have you ever thought you needed one thing? Maybe you've asked for it, but you were given something completely different. Maybe it was a gift you really wanted and you didn't get it, you got something else. Uh, maybe, maybe it was a job you were chasing, you didn't get it, but you, you got some other job, uh, some unexpected go- job. Well, well, several years ago, me and my wife, we wanted to serve uh, on the mission field, on the, in, in international missions. And I was, I was ready, my wife was ready, we were eager and ready to move forward. So we set up a meeting with our missions pastor at the church at, our time, at the time to discuss all of our options. We we're going we're gonna to make this thing happen. And so George... Uh, he's a funny guy. The missions pastor replied immediately. I, I sent an email to him. He said, great, I'm on my way to Central Asia. We can meet when I get back. And you see, something you need to understand about this is Central Asia at our church, whenever someone said Central Asia, it was code word for a specific co- country, typically. It was a, typically a code word. Our church had a team of people in this specific country, which might I add, it was a beautiful place. Uh, had a city on the Mediterranean Sea, a warm place with people that we loved, friends we knew. It was a familiar place for, for us. And I knew, that because, I, because I was communicating with his assistant, I knew that he was on a plane heading to that specific country, the country that we knew, that was familiar. Uh, it, was, it was a beautiful place. And I kid you not, two days later, this George, our missions pastor, sends out an email to the entire church while he's in this known country. This is what he said, I'm here in Central Asia, and there is a school over here that serves missionary kids, grade K through 12, that just lost all of their teachers. Anybody that is willing to serve here for one to three years, we will support and pay your way for 100% of the cost. Kelly was a high school teacher. I, I, I really enjoyed teaching. I immediately forwarded the email to Kelly. I got her on the phone. We're both excited. This seemed like an answered prayer. This is exactly what we were looking for. I immediately responded back to George and said, okay, great, we're in, we'll go. He responds back immediately, in all caps, wow, praise God. And then he sends me the link to the school. And I I go to the school's website and I'm like, wait a second, something's not right here. Something's not right. This school was not in our beautiful country with with familiar friends in in a warm climate on the Mediterranean Sea. Nope, it was in a cold Almost Arctic climate in a former Soviet Union country with cement block buildings, which also was considered Central Asia. 
code word for Central Asia. So when I did a quick Google search of this place, <laughs> the only thing you could find was Borat. And that was the only thing that we knew, was Borat. Let's just say Kelly was not happy. All right, Kelly was not happy with me. After many weeks, we did many lengthy discussions. We did end up going to this place, and it became very evident that this is actually where God wanted us to be. God called us to go there. God grew us and shaped us there. It was, in a lot of ways, it was a blessing for us. And several years later, even now, it became very clear that that was where God wanted us to be. You see, we wanted to go to the Mediterranean, but God knew we needed to go somewhere completely different. And this is what we're going to see something in our, in our story today. We think we need one thing, but really we need something completely different. And this happens in normal everyday life. You know, this, this happens, some are lighthearted, some aren't such a big deal, but if we're honest with ourselves, some are a little bit more serious. Because the truth is, we all naturally chase something that we think is the most important thing in our lives, when in reality, it's really not. You know, we think we have our ladder, so to speak, on the right building, uh, only to find out we're climbing the wrong ladder. Whatever we're chasing or climbing, we're essentially making it a functional ruler, it's a functional king in our life. Whatever that thing is, that functional king of our life, it rules us, it can rule our emotions, it can rule our actions and decisions, what we do, what we don't do. It could be something like a job, a career, it could be financial success, financial stability, being socially accepted, popularity, safety, comfort, or possibly even our family. We see this all the time. Right? People are searching and striving to get to the top, climbing the ladder, uh, and that's what they think they need. That's their greatest desire. I mean, we see this with superstars and celebrities, athletes, that achieve what the world would say is the highest achievement for humanity. Sold out crowds, championships, winning the Super Bowl multiple times. But why is it that three months later, or six months later, the excitement wears off? It doesn't last. Often seeing you know, drug and alcohol abuse, affairs, and wondering what their next step is. And whatever the problems they had before, they still exist. We still see them. They're still there. And let's not kid ourselves. This is not just celebrities and superstars. We do the exact same thing. Just think about the things we often think. Maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, or maybe we would. But if we're all honest, we all have these thoughts in some way. If I could just get this job, or if I could just have this house, or have this wife, or husband, or kids, and my, if my wife or my husband would just do this, or whatever it is, if I could just get this goal or have this promotion, if I could just have whatever it is, fill in the blank. We all have something. Whatever it is, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have something like this in our lives that can creep in. It can creep in. So why is it, why is it that when we hit these goals, achieve these things, we're still not satisfied? Why is it that we think we need one thing, but that thing that we need when we get it, we think we need, when we get it, we're often still not satisfied. Why are we such a discontent people? Well, I'm glad you asked, okay? We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, so that's where we're going. Look at Mark, follow along with me in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It's up here on the screens if you have it, if you don't have a Bible with you. And by the way, we do have Bibles in the back. If, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one for free. <clears throat> follow along. In, in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and when he entered... That's Jesus. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, 
they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when, they saw, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned with themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. So just to give you an idea of where we're going today, we're going to walk through the story again. We're going to go a couple verses at a time. We're going to use this text to drive our one big idea, which is this. It's up on the screen. Jesus is more than the great healer. Jesus is the Son of Man that forgives sin. So using that as our direction, we're going to try to keep it really simple. We're just going to break it apart into two different sections. And we're going to see, number one, that Jesus is the great healer. And then number two, Jesus is the Son of Man that forgives sin. And to tie it all together, we're going, to kind of, we're going to come back at the end of our time. We're going to wrestle with this idea, with this lingering deal, uh, issue of discontentment. But let's look back at our story, starting in verses 1 and 2. Okay, we're going to go back to it again. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. He was preaching the word to them. So just imagine, just stop and imagine this scene for a second. He's in a house. It's probably a square house with a flat clay roof. Uh, stairs were typically along the side of the building leaning up to the top of the roof, and there were probably no more than about 50 people jammed packed into this house. Trying, everyone was trying to get close to Jesus. They were trying to hear him speak. And it says, it says Jesus was speaking, he was preaching the word to them. So I imagine, I just kind of imagine people coming into this house and everyone's trying to get in close, uh, peeking their heads into the windows, kids on top of shoulders trying to, trying to see what's going in in a crowd is outside the house because they can't all fit in. And then it says in verse 3, it says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So while Jesus is preaching in this jammed-packed house, four guys bring a paralyzed man, right? a man who cannot move. He's clearly struggling and he needs help. They see that there's no way that they can get through the door. They can't do it. So what do they do? They carry the man up on top of the roof, and they make an opening. They make an opening. And we're not sure how they make an opening, but the most likely way that they made an opening was they probably dug a hole in the roof. Because remember, it's a clay roof. It's doubtful that there was some sort of secret door, like an attic door. You know, they could just kind of lift up and go down. No, they started digging. They probably had shovels involved because that's the type of house that was there. So it was probably a mud and clay roof with shovels. Can you imagine just being in this packed house and all of a sudden, while you're inside of this packed house, the roof starts crumbling, crumbling, right? Just from the sky, I mean from the ceiling, it starts crumbling down and, and, and opening up and a man is lowered into the house, paralyzed. He's lowered into the room. And we may see something like this tonight at the Super Bowl, right? At the halftime show, but maybe not in a house, in a jam-packed house. That's not what we think of. And it's a small house. And I don't think the people 
uh, the owner of the house is probably very happy. There are probably some words that were spoken because they're digging a hole in the roof. I, I just, I, who knows? I don't know if that's true or not, but who knows? But I imagine that happened. But just think about the boldness of the faith of these parents. Right? They were doing whatever it took to get this paralyzed, sick man to Jesus. Why did they do such a bold move? Why did they take the risk? Because they truly believed in faith that, number one, Jesus is the great healer. They believed it. They believed and knew that if anybody could help this man, if anybody could help this man, it would be Jesus. They dragged their friend, whose life was clearly in disarray. His, he clearly needed some sort of help, a person that needed healing. And these friends, they dragged their friends, their friend to Jesus. They did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. They looked past people thinking that they were crazy. <laughs> they looked past people probably laughing at them, any obstacles that came their way. They did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. Because they knew that Jesus was worth it. Jesus was worth it. Jesus couldn't, they knew that Jesus could heal this man's hurt. So with that said, let me, let me quickly address two groups of people here tonight before we move on. This is a bit of a side from our main idea, uh, but it's, it's worth addressing at least. First, the Christian in the room. You know, will you do whatever it takes to get your friends to Jesus? Can you overcome fear? Right, can we overcome social pressures and obstacles and struggles to get our friends to Jesus? Who is it in your life that we need to carry and drag and do whatever it takes to get them to Jesus? To put them at the feet of Jesus. You can't heal anybody. You can't save anyone. You can only take them to the one who can. And then secondly, maybe you're here tonight and you're hurting. Maybe something in your life is not right. Maybe it's physical emotional, material, maybe your soul is not at rest, you're searching for healing. I don't, know what, I, don't, I don't know what it is. But I want you to know, in fact today, that Jesus is the great healer. Jesus is a miracle worker. Jesus can heal the sick. He can make the lame walk. He can make the blind see and the deaf hear. Jesus absolutely cares for your circumstances. He absolutely cares. He cares for you. Whatever it is, Know that he cares and absolutely has the power to heal any sickness or hurt you may have. I don't know what it is for you, but whatever problem you're facing today, know this from our story, that no matter what the problem is, it can be brought to Jesus. It can be brought to Jesus. By no means am I saying he will give you what you ask in regards to your problem, but as we've talked about, he may not give you what you ask, but he will give you what you need. If Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus is all-powerful, all-knowing, that, that means he also knows what you need more than you do, more than I do. He doesn't always give us what we want, but he knows what we need. Let's look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now this is a, this is a, a very pointed and audacious statement from Jesus. Just think about what's going on here. So again, we've talked about Jesus is preaching and four guys... Uh, lower a paralyzed man through a roof down to Jesus so Jesus could heal him. And the very first thing out of Jesus' mouth, it was not be healed. Right? What, what everybody was expecting, what the man was hoping for, what his friends were hoping for, that he would, in fact, be lowered and be healed on the spot. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He makes an earth-shattering statement that seems a little bit out of left field. He was essentially asking for one thing, but he got something completely different. He thought he was going to be healed. Instead, Jesus forgives him of his sins. And at the surface, 
to those there, it, it, it kind of feels like, well, he thinks. You know, like to everyone in the room, it was a bit shocking because, but Jesus is starting to put his finger on a bigger problem. Because the man probably thought, if I could just walk again, I'd be set for life. I'd never be angry again. And I'd always be happy. I'd always be grateful. But Jesus knew what the paralytic needed was deeper than what he wanted. He ne- it was, what, what the paralytic needed was deeper than what he wanted. Jesus knew that the root of, disc, of a discontent heart, it runs deep. It runs really deep. But he knew, like many of our longings and strivings, that once our greatest earthly longing is acquired, the euphoria, it's going to wear off. And the discontent heart will long for the next thing. That's just what we do. Once we get one thing, we start to long for the next thing. And Jesus knew what he wanted, but he knew better what he needed. Look at verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, in this moment, he was doing what he does best. He was teaching multiple different people, multiple different things, all at the same time. Because he's God and he can can do something. But, so Jesus' statement, forgiving this man's sin, it was kind of a double-edged sword. It was like a two-fold statement. He He was teaching both the paralytic one lesson And then he was also teaching the scribes that surrounded him. He was teaching them a completely different lesson. When Jesus made the statement about forgiving this man's sin, the scribes, they started to become alert to what was going on. They thought, wait a second. You can't do that. Like, you you can't forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. And by making this statement, by Jesus forgiving this man's sin, and remember, this is early on in his ministry. Jesus is declaring himself to be God. That's what he's doing by saying that. To have the authority and the, and the, and the power of God. And honestly, I think, I think the scribes give a pretty logical, uh, logical response. Look what he says. He says, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. You see, the, the scribes, they understood what he was saying. The scribes, they understood that through this, this statement, He was making a self-declaration saying that he was God. That's what Jesus was saying. And the scribes, in a lot of ways, I think we can at least agree with their logic. Whether we agree with them or not, we can agree with their logic. If Jesus is not God, he's got to be a crazy man. He has to be a blasphemer if he's not God. If Jesus is not God, he can't be a good teacher. If Jesus is not God, he can't be a wise man because no sane and good prophet claims to have the authority and power of God Because good prophets speak for God, but they know that they're not God. Prophets know that. And this passage demands us to make the decision. Jesus is either God that forgives sin, that's worthy of our worship and devotion, or he's a crazy, blaspheming lunatic. There's no middle ground here. We have to decide. Look at verse 8. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? You see, Jesus, he's picking up on why they're skeptical of him. The scribes listening to him, they're following him, they're concerned. The scribes are. And then Jesus comes in and he continues to teach and amaze a little bit more. Look, at, look back at verse 9. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, 
take up your bed and walk. This verse is a bit tricky. You know, I, I've always, I kind of, it feels a little bit like a riddle. Uh, and I've always loved a good riddle. Okay, so we're going to look at this a little bit. Think about this with me for a second. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. So a mere human, just follow me here. To all of us in the room, to those in the room at the time, to the scribes and the Pharisees, the paralytic, I think to them, and probably to us, it seemed much easier for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. Because think about it. In that moment, there's nothing visibly miraculous when you say to someone, son, your sins are forgiven. If I went up to someone in a room, and I just said to them, brother, your sins are forgiven, in a large crowd, you know, the people in the room would think, oh, that's a nice gesture, but they're not visibly seeing a change. Like, it's not, there's not visible evidence that his sins are actually forgiven. It seems like a nice gesture. And you know, um, if his sins are forgiven, no one will really know, right? Because you don't see it. And however, if I went up to a paralyzed man in a room, a, a man who could not walk, he was completely crippled. If he was laying on the floor and I looked at the man, I said, rise, get up and walk. In that moment, I've put some stuff on the line, right? The man either walks or he doesn't walk. If the man doesn't walk, to those looking on, there's a good chance I'd be written off as a crazy person. I'm just trying to demand him to come off, come up. So to answer Jesus' question, which is harder to say, to a mere human saying, pick up your mat and walk, seems like the more difficult thing to say. But let's think about this a little bit more. Because Jesus, as we saw last week, he's not claiming to be human. Jesus is claiming to be God. So if Jesus is truly God, which would be harder for God to say? Think about it. The God that created the world, that hung the moon and the stars, that created the world out of nothing, if God has the power at his disposal, which we believe he does, would it be harder to say, rise, pick up your bed and go home, or to say your sins are forgiven? And when we understand God's glory, the holiness of God, the power of God, and the wickedness and horridness of sin, we start to understand this a little bit more. Because if Jesus is God, as he claims to be, for Jesus to say to a paralytic, rise, pick up your mat or in your bed and go home, that seems like a piece of cake to God. Like that's a walk in the park. That's nothing, right? He created the world in his breath. By, he spoke the world into existence. God created man and woman. If God wants to heal, God will heal. God has the power to heal. For God to heal this man, it doesn't cost him much. However, for Jesus... To forgive sin, it would cost him his entire life. For Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, that was clearly the harder statement. For Jesus to forgive sin, it would require him to go to a bloody cross. It would require him to, to die a criminal's death, go in a spiritual war, into a cosmic battle with evil to defeat sin and death. For Jesus to forgive this man's sin, in that moment, he was essentially looking at, looking at him and saying, your consequence of death in that moment, all of your sin, everything you've done that deserves an eternal consequence of death and hell, when Jesus looks at that man, he's looking at him and saying, I love you and I care for you. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to take your punishment. I'm going to take the consequences of your sin. The criminal's death that you deserve, I'm going in your place. The eternity separated from God that you deserve because of your sin, I'm going to battle that and I'm going to win. 
for you so that you can be with God for eternity. In that moment, God is showing miraculous grace. God is showing astounding grace. Grace that left in it all because it, they caused them to leave and worship in amazement as we see at the end of the section, at the, at the end of our, at the end of our text. And that same grace, and that same mercy that he showed the paralytic, it extends to each of us here today. Because each of us are crippled by sin. We're essentially left paralyzed by our sin. And in the gospel, by Jesus going to the cross, he looks at us and says, pick up your mat and go home. Pick up your mat and go home. He says, pick up your mat and walk. Pick up your mat and run and scream and shout because you're no longer paralyzed by sin. You can run. You can run. Because you've been forgiven by your sin, you can run in the freedom of the gospel. In the gospel, because of the cross, because of the forgiveness of sin, you're no longer paralyzed by sin. You're no longer crippled by sin. In the gospel, our sins are forgiven, and we go from being paralyzed by our sin to running free from our sin. If you're a Christian here today, this is such good news. I'm guessing there's a good chance that many of you, uh, many of us walked in here with some sort of sin that we're wrestling with that possibly can feel paralyzing or crippling, possibly something that we feel like you can't defeat. Hear this today. In the gospel, you're a new creation. The gospel declares you free. You can run in the freedom of the gospel. We need to run from our sin. We need to flee our sin because it cripples us. It's a wretched, horrendous, crippling disease. But in the gospel, you can run and be amazed. And as we run in the freedom of the gospel, we start to be, God starts to change us and reshape us. This is something we need, and this is something we need to continue to need. We need the gospel every day because sin is always lurking at the door. It's trying to cripple us. But every day, because of the cross, we can reject that. And we can run to the cross and to Jesus. Look what, happens, look what happens in verse 10. Look what Jesus says. He continues to amaze these people. He says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. So as we circle back around to our riddle, to the question of which is harder to say, Jesus knew to those watching, it seemed harder for them to heal him. It seemed harder for Jesus to say, pick up your mat and go home and to tell, and to tell him to walk. That seemed, from the outside looking in at Jesus, that seemed to be the harder thing, and Jesus knew that. And it says in verse 10, Jesus had to prove that he was God. So that's what he did. So in doing that, he healed this man, showing that he was in fact God. That's why he healed him. But there's something else in this story that I want us to notice because the story continues to go deeper and deeper. Because in verse 10, Jesus starts to make a very subtle statement of who he is. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. That's a title that he gives himself. And this is a massive declaration that he's kind of claimed on himself, that Jesus provides to himself. This is another declaration yet again. But letting everyone know letting everyone there that called on know that he is more than a nice man. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a rabbi. Jesus is the Son of Man. When Jesus gives himself this title, he's actually pulling from the book of Daniel. Uh, you know, and some may have noticed this, 
He, he, he calls himself the son of man. It's, it's more of a subtle thing to those watching. Some may have noticed, but most probably did not. And it comes out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. I'm just going to put it up on the screen here so you can see what it says. This is what it says. There came one like a son of man. This is, this is kind of the description of who, he's, who, who the son of man claims to be. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. Listen, this, here's the description. This is what it says starting in verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Get this, okay? When Jesus was making this subtle declaration referring to himself as the son of man as he did in, verse, in Mark chapter 2 verse 10, he's saying, I'm the king of the world. That's what he's saying. All people from all over the world will serve Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is forever. It cannot be destroyed. That's, the, that's quite the declaration that Jesus is making upon himself by calling himself the Son of Man. Again, Jesus can't be, can't be merely a rabbi, a prophet, or even one of many gods. Jesus is saying, I'm the supreme king of the world. No other gods exist. Everything is under his authority. Again, he's either worthy of our soul and complete devotion, or he must be written off as a crazy person. There's nowhere in between. In Jesus' kingdom, there is no other room for, God, for, for any other gods. There's no room for a half-hearted devotion. He's either the king of the world that forgives, of, forgives us of our sin, or he's a maniac and a lunatic. There has to, he has to be one or the other. Calling Jesus a nice rabbi, a great teacher, or one of many gods is radically irrational and logically inconsistent with who Jesus claims himself to be. So if you're not, here, if you're, if you're not a Christian here today, you're faced with this question, who is Jesus? As we've seen, Jesus is either the great healer, the son of man that forgives sin, that went to the cross and defeated sin and death, or if he's not that, Jesus has to be the greatest con artist ever to walk this earth. We have to decide. And I hope and pray and beg you to consider the truth of who Jesus claims to be, that he is the son of man that forgives. I believe this is the most logical and reasonable step of faith. But as we, we talked about this last week, it's still a step of faith. Every religion on this planet, even a claiming to be irreligious or non-religious, is a step of faith. And I pray and urge to continue, that we would continue to explore the claims of Jesus. But beware, Jesus may, claim, may change your life. But if you're, a, if you're a Christian here today, what a joy. What a joy. What a great truth that we can celebrate. Jesus is the Son of Man, the King of the world, the ruler of the everlasting kingdom that forgives sin. And honestly, there's so many things that we can draw out of this story. Right? There's so many truths to sit in and reflect on. But what I want us to think about today, in just kind of the last 10 minutes of our time, I want to reflect on one specific thing. I want to circle, about, I want to circle back around what we discussed at the beginning. How we often feel... We need one thing, but really we need something completely different. Out of everything in this story, this concept, it seems to be the, the, the loudest, screaming at us the loudest. This is what Jesus is emphasizing and the point he's trying to get across. Because in this story, we've got this paralyzed man that has a very real external problem. Real. Like, the guy cannot walk. And he just can't walk. He's paralyzed. This seems to be the greatest problem in this man's life. So much so that he'll do whatever it takes 
His friends will do whatever it takes to see that this problem is fixed. He believes, and his friends believe, that the greatest problem in his life are his external circumstances, his paralysis. His, he believes and his friends believe that the greatest problem in his life is the fact that he cannot walk. And let me remind you, but yes, that is a major problem. I've never been paralyzed, but I can't imagine it being very right? it, it would be difficult and challenging and agonizing and real and true and hard and difficult. But when, come, when, when they come to Jesus, Jesus acknowledges a completely different problem. He's acknowledging the problem of their sin. And in doing that, he's emphasizing that even as bad as paralysis seems, the fact that he cannot walk, Jesus is addressing a much bigger problem. That's what any good physician does. Right? When you, they try to get to the deeper problem. If someone comes in coughing to a doctor's office, you don't just walk out with cough syrup. Right? They try to address the problem. Sometimes you do. Right, but they try to address the problem. If the, if the, the coughing, if the coughing of, is a symptom of something deeper, you know, maybe it's like the flu. They have to address that issue. Or maybe, possibly, they've got lung cancer. They've got a whole another host of problems that they have to wrestle with. The problem isn't the cough. The, cough, the problem is the disease or the sickness. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's addressing the deeper problem first. He's addressing the problem of their sin. There's a few ways I want us to look at this. First, if you're not a Christian, again, this seems to be clear. Just like in this man's life, the greatest problem in your life is the problem of your sin. Every other problem you have, whether it's a relational problem, a family problem, a financial problem, a school problem, a work problem, a health problem, whatever seems to be the greatest problem in your life, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that yes, those are significant struggles, real struggles, painful, difficult, and yes, he wants to help you with those too, but they're only temporary, momentary problems. It's only temporary in view of eternity. But without the forgiveness of sin, we have an eternal problem. We have a problem that goes past this life. We have a problem that it's an eternity separated from God forever. And the good news of the gospel is that just like Jesus tells the man to pick up his bed and walk, walking into a new life, healed, Jesus does the exact same thing for you and me in the gospel. Because Jesus went to the cross on your behalf. He provides the forgiveness of sin that allows us to walk into the newness of life, healed from the paralysis of our sin. Don't miss this today. It's a gift. The gospel is a gift given to you by God. Secondly, if you are a Christian here today, or even if you're not a Christian, right? Don't miss this, because just like they thought their greatest problem in this man's life was his external circumstances, his physical problem, if we're not careful, we can do the exact same thing with our own life. We may not be physically paralyzed, but we can each have these little things in our life that we can easily find ourselves drifting towards, ladders that we're trying to climb up, only to find out the ladder was on the wrong building. It's on the wrong, it was the wrong ladder. And you know, the emotion of our discontent life, when we're discontent, it will often show what ladder we're climbing. I do this all the time. I'm guilty of this. It can be a subtle reality, or maybe it's a not so subtle reality. Whatever it is, we can often think, if I could just have, and then we fill in the blank, my life would be better. It could be a million different things. 
more money, more sleep, more time alone, better grades, different job, more opportunity, more friends, different friends, better friends, a better living situation, whatever it is, fill in the blank. It happens to all of us. But here's the thing. Our external circumstances often get placed where only the Son of Man deserves to be. It can be so easy to try and find comfort or stability in our external circumstances when God wants us to find our comfort, stability, and contentment in Jesus and Jesus alone. Listen, trying to improve our external circumstances, all the things that are around us, that's a good thing. Right? It's not bad. But we have to be careful that those things, our external circumstances, is not the main thing. That it's not driving us. The Son of Man is the title for the king right, of, of all peoples. That's what his title means, which includes you and me. The Son of Man, Jesus, should be the king of our life. But what often happens is that we like to flip-flop who's king and who serves who. Right? We, if we're honest, it's really easy to want Jesus to serve us. Just to make our external circumstances better, to fix it or to, to take away our problems for us. And hear me on this. He, I've said this many times. Jesus absolutely cares about our circumstances. He's the great healer. He cares. It matters. We see time and time again that Jesus is helping people and healing people. But what can often happen if we're not careful is that we can want Jesus to be the great healer, but not the Son of Man. Right? We want Jesus to make our circumstances better, but we don't want him to be the sovereign king of our life. What if Jesus wants to use our circumstances to make us more dependent on the Son of Man, the King of our life? What if Jesus has placed you in your current challenge so that you can show a glimpse of God's kingdom to the world? What if God has placed, in you, a, placed you in a specific difficult place to show the world what it's like to be ruled by the Son of Man in the midst of challenges? Because wherever you go, if Christ is in you. This is so this is so good. If Christ is in you, you are taking God's kingdom to that place. We can't miss. We can't miss it. When Jesus portrays the forgiveness of sin to be the great to be the great the greater need than a physical healing, he's putting his finger on something we all believe. We often believe. We, we can all slide into it in some way. Maybe it's a recurring theme for you. Maybe it's something subtle. I don't know. We all have to, whatever it is, we all have to, to watch it and see how it manifests. But just like the paralyzed man, we need to be reminded that our greatest problem is not on the outside of us. Our greatest problem is on the inside of us. And this is true for everyone here today, both Christian and non-Christian. We must remember that today our greatest problem is our sin, not our health, not our job, not our boss, not our finances, not our circumstances, not even someone else's sin. Right? Not, so, not your spouse's sin, not your friend or your roommate or family member's sin, not your boss's sin. No, our greatest need is our own sin. If we each believe that our greatest problem is not what is outside of us, but what's on the inside of us, most relationships would be so much better. I mean, just how, how humbling is this? When, when you see someone else's sin glaring at you, but you think, no, no, no. I see their sin, but my sin is far worse than that. Mine is, mine is much greater. I want everyone in here to follow me here. For, for, for everyone here today, if our greatest problem is our, is our sin, then our greatest need is for our sin to go away. Our greatest need today is the gospel. Our greatest need is God. It's Jesus who is at the very center of the gospel. If we do not have Jesus, we do not have good news. If your greatest problem is your sin, then your greatest need is Jesus. Your greatest need today is to delight in Jesus. 
sit at the feet of Jesus, to dwell in his daily grace, to be in his word, to be fed by him, to find the rest that only he can provide. Our greatest need is not to fix our outside circumstances. Our greatest need is to come to the man who looks inside of us and says to us, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk in the newness of life. Get up and run. Get up and worship the God that gave his son for you. Worship him today. If you're not a Christian, the same is true for you. If your greatest problem is sin, your greatest need is for your sin to go away. Your greatest need today is the gospel. Your greatest need today is to trust in the only one who can take your sins away. To trust in Jesus who is at the center of the greatest news on the planet. Who's the only one who can look at you and say, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. You're no longer paralyzed by your sin. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are gone. You're free. Only Jesus, the Son of Man, has the authority and power to do that. And I pray that we would trust Him. You're here today. For everyone here. We need the grace that only Jesus can provide. Jesus looks at us as the great healer. He longs to help us and heal us. But even greater than that, Jesus, the Son of Man, looks at us with astounding grace. When we put our faith in him, he says to us, son and daughter, your sins are forgiven. You can walk in the newness of life. Let's worship the Lord in all today. Father, you're, you are good. You're the son of man, the ruler of our life, the sovereign king of the world. Father, we need to come and sit at the feet of Jesus. Our greatest problem is our sin and our greatest need is Christ. I pray that we would believe that today, that we would understand that, that we would worship because of that. We ask this on you.